I did decide to come out of the Book of Acts. I know we were right on the precipice of getting into Paul's farewell speech to the elders of Ephesus. But this morning, I um, will we'll be looking more into um, Luke's Gospel. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at Advent-themed sermons. And I haven't done this in a number of years, but I wanted to to look back again at some of the passages dealing with Christmas, dealing with the birth of Christ, um, even as we're entering into the Advent season and the holidays are about us. And um, it's interesting because a lot of restrictions have been lifted and people are out and, and people see Christmas as a time of joy and hope. Uh, you hear the song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, you know, it's been a very depressing few years with the pandemic and all sorts of political strife and other issues. Um, we're dealing with a time of inflation and economic issues. And it seems like people look to Christmas as a time to forget everything and, and just be in a, in a jolly spirit, even unbelievers. And clearly, people that don't know Christ and they're not in Christ have a false idea and understanding of what Christmas is all about. And they're looking to uh, Christmas for all the wrong reasons um, for their joy. But for us who are in Christ, for those of us who are in faith, we have absolutely every right to see this time as a time to celebrate, as a time to be joyful, not just in December, but, but all year round. It's always Christmas for the Christian, because the birth of Christ is, is something that uh, is an announcement. It's an announcement that, yes, as, it said, as the Lord, through the angels, said to the, to the shepherds, you know, peace to all men. Yeah, there's peace, and that peace is the peace, the shalom of God that we have through, as we said before, justification. So I want to kind of go through some of the narratives of the Christmas story and, and look at what God's word says and, and look at what God, look at the real story, right? Because we watch movies and we see different things and they present different narratives to us and somehow we get those narratives stuck in our mind. Let's see what it really is spoken to, and may God uh, lift up our hearts through it. Let's read in Luke 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. And from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we come before you this morning once again in prayer. O Lord, we ask for divine illumination now into our text. Father, open the word before us. Open your word before us. Give us hearts to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear. We pray, O Lord, that you would reveal your will to us, and may we have a greater concept and behold the grace that you showed uh, to Mary and to Elizabeth and to, uh, O Lord, all of your people through them and, and through the birth of your son. O Lord, give us a greater understanding, Lord, of this this beautiful song composed by Mary that you inspired her to, to write and to be recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke may be a model of worship for all of us. We pray, O oh now, Lord, that you would hear our prayers. Give me divine unction, I ask. O oh Lord, I plead with you that your spirit would overshadow my mind and my heart and speak through me as a vessel of honor. To your glory alone we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. After singing the songs that we sang today, this time of worship and praise, it, it is a very distinct and important aspect and component of Christianity. Among all the world religions, Christianity is a singing religion. It is a religion in which we sing for joy, we sing gladly, and it prepares us uh, for the most important part of worship, and that is the hearing of God's word. It, it peppers the heart, it, it, it softens the heart, and engages our mind as we sing forth the praises of God. And in Christmas season, it is no different. In fact, we sing many Christmas songs, we call them carols, in reminder of the birth of Christ. Now, there are some Christmas songs that are utterly meaningless and just simply uh, fun to listen to, but the deeper Christmas carols that uh, are written some years ago that were written by the hymn writers are, are Christmas carols of deep theological importance. They're timeless. When we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or when we sing, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, these are songs not just written to get on the top 40 of our radio, but they are written based on the Word of God. There is scriptural insight to them. And so the Christmas carol stands in a long tradition of hymns of praise in church history. However, does anyone here know who wrote the first Christmas carol ever? Anyone. We just read it. The first Christmas carol ever penned was written and sung by Mary herself. It is called Mary's Magnificat. It is magnificent in that it magnifies the Lord. It is a song of praise. It is a song of worship. We don't know quite how it was uh, retained. There, it is believed that Mary, as we know, she treasured many things in her heart as she watched the development of Jesus as a child to an adult, as the Holy Spirit filled her at this moment that we just read about, and she burst out in a song of praise. We have to conclude that she penned this hymn down immediately afterward 
and treasured it as something that God had given her. As we read through this song that was composed here, and you know it's a song by the way it's written. If you look at your Bible and you see a lot of white space in an area like the book of Psalms, that's because that tells us and indicates, the translators indicate us that this is poetry. This is written in a form of poetry, not prose. It is written in a form of song, of praise. And so this is, uh, uh, this is a way of demonstrating to us that this is a poetic song that was written by Mary and recorded for us by Luke. Evidently, at some point, Luke had interviewed Mary because we know that Luke records details for us that none of the other gospel accounts give us, particularly the synoptics. And so today I want to look at this first Christmas carol, if you will, as Mary's Magnificat, and get an understanding of what is going on in the heart. We could look to Mary. We could look to Mary as a model of worship. We could look to Mary as a model of, of true love for God. We could look to Mary as a model of how to celebrate Christmas. And as you get a glimpse into the heart of Mary here in this song, one thing we learn is she is God-centered. She is someone completely and utterly devoted to God, and that is what brings her joy. So let's look first at the occasion here, and the occasion is that Mary visits Elizabeth. Why was Mary so eager to visit Elizabeth? Well, in order to understand that, you have to read what just came before it, and that is because Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, who revealed to her that she would conceive and carry the Messiah. It says in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And as of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, it's not often you get a, a phone call from an angel. It's not often you get a phone call from an archangel like Gabriel. And the last time we see in Scripture that Gabriel uh, it, it represents himself to another human being is in the book of Daniel. And Gabriel had revealed himself to Gabriel, and uh, Gabriel had revealed himself to Daniel a couple of times in helping him to discern and to understand the prophetic visions that God was giving him. But here we see that Gabriel is bringing to Mary. An incredible revelation. That revelation is that she has been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah, to bring Christ into the world. Now, such news can be very overwhelming. 
And clearly she would have wanted some kind of understanding of this. We see that she's a woman of faith. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She's told also that her cousin Elizabeth also has conceived in her old age and she's past childbearing years. And so no doubt this causes, or this is the occasion for her to go visit Elizabeth. She wants to see and make sure and validate that Elizabeth is indeed pregnant. And also, in her own heart, although we can't assume this, there is an implication here to validate the message revealed to her through Gabriel. If indeed Elizabeth is with child, then Mary can know for certain that this revelation is true and it's of God. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. If the angel told her that Elizabeth was the recipient of the miraculous conception, it wouldn't hurt to verify all of this. If there was anyone who could verify it, it would be Elizabeth. And so there, Mary makes the trek. This would have been a long journey, about a 70, 80-mile journey. It would have easily taken her a few days, and she would have taken this on her own, a quite dangerous journey for a young lady in early Palestine. Now, we're not sure exactly how they're related. The implication, the understanding of the belief is traditionally that they are cousins. However, we know that Elizabeth is much older than her. Mary would have been somewhere between the age of 13 and 15 years old. That is about the age that you got married off um, in ancient Israel. So um, while we see women marrying in their 30s today as a typical age or mid-20s, it was about 13, 14, 15 years old you were married in ancient Israel. Now, that may seem preposterous today, but that is the way it was. And so these were two very different women separated by years, but now they have something very much in common. One was carrying the forerunner to the Messiah, and one was carrying the Messiah. But there are some distinguishing factors here, and that distinguishing factor is that uh, Elizabeth and her husband actually knew each other. The, the birth of John, the conception of John was of natural means, miraculous in the sense that God uh, gave her uh, uh, fruitfulness in her womb to be able um, to give birth to John. He made her fertile. Whereas Mary never knew a man. Christ was conceived by supernatural means, as the angel told her, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, and the child shall be called holy. There is a major distinction. Yet, while they are separated, these two women, by distance and age, they have more in common than ever before as they share a common purpose, a divine purpose, in God's plan of redemption. So we see Mary enters the home and she immediately greets Elizabeth. And it tells us that... Uh, there was a great reaction. There was an immediate reaction from Elizabeth. It says that the baby within her womb leapt for joy. Now, those of you, women who were pregnant, you know the feeling of a baby when they kick and they move in your stomach. Uh, but this was a great leap of joy. John the Baptist, who was there in his mother's womb at six months of gestation, literally wanted to leap out in joy at the voice of Mary not because of Mary so much, but he sensed the presence of Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. John the Baptist was about six months in gestation in his mother's womb and leapt for joy at the presence of Christ 
who may have only been maybe one or two months in gestation at most. This past week, the Supreme Court of the United States heard a case regarding abortion. In Mississippi, a ban was placed on abortions under 24 weeks, I believe. And so this was challenged and brought before the Supreme Court. And for the first time in many years, the Supreme Court is debating abortion. It could very well be that Roe v. Wade it will be overturned. And that is the suspicion based on the makeup of the court at this time. One of the debates and discussions that took place, if you've followed it at all, was at what point in a woman's caring of a baby is viability detected? Viability meaning at what point is, is the fetus considered a human being, a human life? Now, the debate was between 24 weeks and 15 weeks. Let me just make it clear to you what God's word tells us. We are conceived immediately. We have the spirit in us. Immediately, there is viability. John the Baptist was six months old in his mother's womb, and he was leaping for joy. And it tells us in verse 15 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Imagine aborting him. Christ would have been, like I said, at most two months, maybe let's just say under a month, under four weeks, if she left immediately after hearing the message from Gabriel and the presence of Christ was sensed by John the Baptist. I want you to think about that for a moment. It also tells us that John was no ordinary baby, was he? In the Old Testament, the filling of the Holy Spirit was only at a time when people were consecrated for ministry, such as the priest or the prophet or the king, where oil was poured upon the head, indicating that that person was set apart for the ministry of God and for the work of God. John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit in conception demonstrates to us that he was consecrated from the day he was conceived for the work of God. It was a high calling. John MacArthur says this, John the Baptist at that time was also the smallest prophet who ever lived. Somewhere between nine and ten inches, he was the lightest prophet who ever lived. He was one and a half pounds, and he was the strangest looking prophet because he had transparent skin, and although all of his physical parts had formed, that little life, that little life of a prophet, the greatest prophet who ever lived, was used by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to indicate delight at the fact that the Messiah had been conceived in Mary. God literally gave physical confirmation to Mary through the movement of that and child interpreted by Elizabeth. Amazing. Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. It tells us, tells us in verse 42, she was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Verse 41, rather. Carrying the baby John is a high calling in and of itself. And so Elizabeth herself acknowledges the work of God. She acknowledges that Mary is a blessed woman among many women and that the fruit of her womb is blessed. Think about it. Every Jewish girl going back to the time, ancient Israel, going back to the, the time when God's word revealed to them from Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman would come one, would come the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. 
The, the, the messianic prophecy had begun from the day of the Garden of Eden and it was every Jewish girl's hope and dream that she would be the one to bring the Messiah into the world. Think of how every little Jewish girl felt when they heard Isaiah 7.14 that behold the virgin shall conceive. This would, have been, this would have been the highest blessing that God could give upon any woman. And Mary is indeed blessed among all women for God chose her. And blessed is the fruit of her womb. She's carrying the Lord Jesus. Notice what else Elizabeth says. She says, the mother of my Lord. She declares that Mary is the mother of my Lord. She's humbled and overwhelmed and amazed that the mother of her Lord would visit her. This is also very significant. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth confirms to Mary that she's indeed carrying the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of Elizabeth. But notice what she does not say. She doesn't say Mary, the mother of God. That is because God doesn't have a mother. She's the mother of Jesus. And there is a big difference. She is the mother of Jesus, but deity is not confined to the person of Jesus. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mary is not the mother of God, and she is not the queen of heaven. She is a young Jewish girl upon whom the greatest promise in Scripture has ever come. She is indeed blessed. Now, by all means, we are not bashing Mary because Mary was created to be an idol by the Church of Rome. There's much to commend Mary here, commend her as a woman of great faith, a woman of great virtue, a woman of holiness. And that's exactly what Elizabeth says. Elizabeth says in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So although Mary would have visited Elizabeth for verification, she didn't need it. She had already believed and had full confidence that God was doing this work. She was a woman of faith. and She was a model of faith to believers of all times. Seeking Elizabeth for verification doesn't mean she lacked faith. But rather, it demonstrated faith in making the journey to go there in the first place. She could have dismissed it immediately. Now, Mary has received an enormous confirmation. She's seen with her own eyes. Her elderly cousin is with child and that the baby she's carrying is a prophet himself. She saw her cousin then filled with the Holy Spirit. And before she could ever utter a word or share with Elizabeth all that happened, Elizabeth shares with her everything herself. What more confirmation could you use? This certainly was a glorious experience. How would you react? How would you respond? Well, another girl might boast and think, wow, look at me, I'm so special. But God chose the mother of the Messiah, not a woman who was boastful or proud, but a woman who was humble. Mary rejoiced at the privilege and the honor of her calling that God would take a nobody sinner like her and bestow upon her one of the greatest honors in history. Let's look at the song she composes and sings afterwards. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. This is why it is called the Magnificat. It is, it is a song of praise that magnifies God. 
And it's a song of the heart. Mary didn't just, uh, um, you know, utter words haphazardly, but this demonstrates it is the outflow of a heart of a young girl who truly loves the Lord. It is a praise that is a result of a natural flow of worship indicative of her life in general. This is a woman who worshiped God all the time, and so it flowed from her heart naturally. What do we learn from this song? Well, a few things. Number one, we know Mary knows the Bible. Mary knows the Bible. This would have been unusual for a Jewish girl in the first century because Jewish girls didn't learn the Bible. The Bi- learning the Bible was strictly reserved for men. She would have come from a priestly background, and we can deduce from this that her father had a great impact in teaching her the scriptures from a young age. He was not bound by that ancient Jewish tradition. Thank you, Lord, I'm a Jew and not a Gentile, a man and not a woman, and a free man and not a slave. This, is a, this was a man who was bound by the scripture and taught his daughter the word of God. And from a young age, I want you to think about that. She's between the age of 13 and 15, and she's well-versed in scripture. And how do we know that? Because this whole song reflects the Old Testament. It's all drawn from scripture. The composition demonstrates she is acquainted with the word of God. Her mind is saturated with the word of God, and it's oozing the word of God. The song itself is a parallel with the song of Hannah, written in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11, when Hannah received the revelation that she would give birth to Samuel. She was also the recipient of a miraculous conception, and the structure and themes are very similar, yet it transcends Hannah's songs. There are also many other echoes. For example, in verse 46, we read, And Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord. Psalm 34, 2. What does it say? My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. In verse 47, we read, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Look at Isaiah 42, 51. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. In verse 48, And he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's an echo of 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 11, if thou will indeed look upon the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and forget thy handmaid. And Genesis 30, uh, 13, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. Look at verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Psalm 126, 3 says, the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. I can go on and on. Every verse in this song relates directly back to the Old Testament. This is an important lesson for us. Mary's song is rooted and based on Scripture. It means she read the Bible, she studied the Bible, she memorized the Bible, and she had a high regard for the Word of God. This should tell us that if we're going to be people who worship God, people who reflect a heart of worship, that we also need to be filled with the Word of God, don't we? In Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hot psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. True worship to God will always be Bible-driven. If you recognize also, our own worship songs are also patterned off the Bible. That's the richness of the old hymns, too. I know we 
edging more towards contemporary music, and there's great contemporary music, right? The Gettys are, are composing beautiful modern hymns that reflect a biblical uh, theology, but the ancient hymns are timeless. They're rooted in scripture. True worship will always be Bible-driven. The Bible draws us into the heart and mind of God, and the more we learn God, how he worked in times past, in other lives, we will be compelled and driven to Christ-centered worship. Secondly, what do we learn about Mary? She's humble before God. She's humble. This, this is a humble girl. This is not someone who's proud and arrogant. And just gleaning from the opening line of her hymn, we see that she has a big view of God. She has a big view of God and a little view of herself. The word magnify here in Greek is megalonai. We get the word mega there. And what does mega mean? It means big. It means to enlarge, to make big, to magnify. And that's precisely the theme of Mary's song. She wants to make God big. When you think of a telescope, I saw one the other day in Costco, went to, you know, thinking about one of my daughters for a Christmas gift, a little hint. What does a telescope do? It takes things that are far away that look really small and magnifies them and makes it look big. God is not that far from us, but we magnify him. We magnify him when we praise and we worship him. Instead of magnifying him, we tend to magnify ourselves. We tend to magnify people. We tend to magnify our problems. But Mary is completely God-centered. The hymn focuses on God's character, his faithfulness to the covenant, his past deeds, his sovereignty, and a large emphasis on his grace. She says, my spirit rejoices in my Savior. This is a very important point, too. Mary's saying that she needs a Savior just like you and me. She recognizes she's a sinner. She is in need of redemption. She is in need of forgiveness. She is in need of justification. She is in need of sanctification, just like everyone else. This turns the Roman view of Mary upside down. According to the Roman Catholic view, Mary was born sinless and without sin. It is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. They say she had to be sinless in order to carry the Lord Jesus. They teach that she was a perpetual virgin after the birth of Christ and she ascended to heaven like Elijah and like Christ and that she now intercedes in heaven for Christians. If there's one thing that is so damnable about Roman Catholicism, it is the Marian cult. And you won't know how ugly it is unless you've visited a country or culture that venerates Mary. We had that experience in Italy. When Claudia and I first got married, we went to Italy, and uh, we spent about a month there. We were in Europe. We went to Italy and Switzerland as well, uh, dabbled in France for a couple of days, but, but mostly we were in Italy. And, and in our time there, I cannot tell you how, how ugly it was. Remember we were reading a couple weeks ago about Paul when he was in Athens and his soul was disturbed by all the idols he saw? That's how I felt when I was in Italy. Because everywhere I went was either a statue of Mary or a picture of Padre Pio. 
And, and those are the two idols of the Italians. But you go to a lot of cultures that are steeped in Roman Catholicism, and, and, and you wouldn't know that Jesus is even part of the Christian religion. You think you would equate Mary. It's all Mary. They pray to Mary. They worship Mary. They venerate Mary. Now, Mary is not the mother of God. She's not the queen of heaven. She wasn't born without sin. She is a humble Jewish girl that God looked upon with mercy. Verse 48, she states in her own way, he has looked on my humble estate of his servant. Her humble estate. She is a poor girl. She's a nobody from nowhere. God didn't choose a woman of nobility to be the mother of Messiah. He didn't choose the wife of Caesar. He didn't choose the wife of Herod. He didn't choose a wealthy or powerful woman, but he chose a poor woman, a nobody, an unknown from a little town, an obscure girl. But isn't that how God works? God uses the nobodies in life to accomplish his purpose and his will. God doesn't need our power and our wealth and our success to accomplish his goals. He simply needs people who are broken and humble and completely dependent on him. 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being may boast in his presence. In verse 48, she says, people in old generations will count her blessed. Not because she in herself possesses the quality to attribute that which is worthy to be worshipped, but rather people will count her blessed for what God has done for her. She is not the dispenser of blessing, but the recipient of blessing. And therefore, all generations will call her blessed. Mary's blessedness is, in one simple thing, God's favor upon her. Otherwise, she's an ordinary person like you and I. Notice how Jesus himself will respond later in his public ministry as an adult. As he's preaching and teaching, he tells us in Luke eleven twenty seven, 27, he was teaching, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast in which you were nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Yes, she was blessed, but she's one of many. She was a member of the church, and she served alongside other members of the church. And Jesus says, if you hear God's word and you obey it and keep it, then you are just as blessed. God's favor is upon you. Humility is an important aspect of worship. If we're going to worship God aright, we have to have humble hearts. In fact, apart from humility, I want you to hear this, apart from humility, it's impossible to worship God. You cannot worship God with a proud, arrogant heart. You cannot. It's impossible. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's an oxymoron, a proud worshiper. It doesn't make sense. Only a humble and contrite person can worship God. Why? Because when you're full of pride, you're full of another competitive God, and that is yourself. 
Self is the cheap competitor for worship away from God. And Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You either serve one and hate the other or vice versa. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that can attribute to any idol in your life. And dare I say the chief idol that we all struggle with is self. Pride is the greatest enemy to worship. See, true worship recognizes one's own unworthiness in light of the infinite worthiness of God. I think the best way I could explain this and give an example is I remember many years ago when Claudia and I were in California. Again, it's in our little trips I get these illustrations. But we were in Napa Valley. And uh, we, were, we were on vacation and we were, went out into the, um, to the vineyard one night. It was a nice, cool night. And we, we just stopped the car, turned off the lights and just looked up. And oh my goodness, when you just see the heavens, there's no light to interfere. When all the lights are out and you're not in the city, you're in the country, you can behold the Milky Way galaxy, the bands. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. It's overwhelming. You almost, and, and, and at that moment, you feel so little. You feel tiny. And there's a sense of awe that comes over you when you realize that God's even bigger than all of that. That's what it is to be humbled before God. Is when you just realize the immensity of who he is and how little we are. Thirdly, we learn about Mary. She was a thankful girl. She was a, a person with a heart full of gratitude. She says in verse 49, for he has done great things for me. Mary recognizes what the Lord has done for her. Her worship was driven and motivated by her deep sense of appreciation for what God has done for her. That's the amazing thing about God. God could be worshipped alone for his glory. He could be worshipped alone for his, the beauty of his divine attributes. But what really drives us to worship is what he does for us. God doesn't have to do anything for us, but he shows grace to us continually. He is actively involved in our lives, doing good to us every day to cause us to worship him, to cause us to, to magnify him. If you feel that God has done no good in your life, then you need to step back and do a reevaluation. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and then you'll see what the Lord has done. Too often we look at what we don't have, particularly in this country. We're a covetous nation. We're a covetous people. We always want what someone else has and are never content with what we have. Always comparing, never being thankful. We're a spoiled country. We have a lot. Even the poorest among us have more than people in other countries. If you think you're poor, go visit a little village in Mexico. Go visit a little village in Africa. Go somewhere in a developing country where there's extreme poverty. You'll come back and say, wow, I got a lot. I got running water. I could take a hot shower. I got food on my table. I have shoes on my feet. We are so blessed. We're so blessed we don't even know it. Mary was thankful, but her thankfulness was for this great thing that God had done for her in choosing her for this great honor. Fourthly, Mary knows the Lord. 
Mary knows the Lord. We see in verses 50 through 53, she recounts many things historically about God. She has a good grasp on who God is, his character. She knows that he's merciful to those who fear him and reverses the fortunes of the proud and arrogant while exalting the humble. Mary is acquainted with scriptures. We know that, so it's no surprise that he knows, she knows how the Lord has dealt with his people in history. She can recount how God overthrew the mighty ones like Pharaoh, the Canaanites, the Philistines, Haman. She knows how he exalted the lowly ones, whether it was Moses or David or Esther or Daniel or Hannah. She knows the history of God's people. She knows the covenant. She knows the triumphs of God's deliverance and intervention. Understands that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 54, she says this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She realizes that God is faithful to keep the covenant, the very promise that God made to her forefathers. He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now finds its fullness and fruition in her. Wow. Talk about being overwhelmed. Now, while this is so overwhelming for Mary, I want you to think about this for another moment. Mary carried the Messiah in her womb and gave birth to Christ. And obviously, she raised him and became a follower of her son herself. Imagine that. It's, Jesus is her son, and at the same time, Jesus is her Lord and Savior. What a, what a conundrum. And yet... We know that Mary will continue in faith the rest of her life. Do you realize that you and I also share in such a unique favorability? It tells us in the New Testament now that Christ has ascended to heaven. We also have the presence of God dwelling in us. She literally had the presence of God in the person of Jesus inside of her. But you and I have the presence of of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, keeping us, securing us to the day of redemption. We have essentially become temples of God. And so the doctrine of Emmanuel, God with us, that promise from Isaiah 7.14 is a reality. Christ doesn't just dwell among us, he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit That is why any of us can do anything of any fruitfulness or profitability to God because it's the Spirit in us that's doing it. We share in this unique position as well. May I argue even in a better way because Mary, once she gave birth to Christ, wouldn't experience the filling of the Holy Spirit till Pentecost. From the moment we were born again, the presence of God came into our hearts and filled us and took complete control of our lives. My goal today was to take a closer look at the heart of Mary through this first Christmas carol that was ever composed. Sadly, the Church of Rome has turned Mary into an object of worship instead of a model of worship. People pour out their prayers to Mary as if she's omnipotent or a goddess. If God wanted us to pray to Mary, he would have told us to do it. And he didn't tell us. 
But what we can learn about Mary is that she is a model for us to follow. She's a model of worship. She's a model of how to serve God. God shows amazing favor upon her. And so in this Christmas season, may we look to Mary as a model of how to worship Christ aright, how to have the right attitude about God, about life. Let us be filled with the word of God. Let us know who our God is and be thankful and rest in his promises. Mary's son would ultimately come into this world, our Lord Jesus, and he would confront the world of Judaism and he would turn the religious elite on their heads. He would confront their phony worship. He would expose their extreme externalism. He would show the cheap show of their piety and hypocrisy. It was all for outward appearance. He would say to them, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs, all clean on the outside, but dead men's bones on the inside. He quoted from Isaiah and would confront the Pharisees and says, these people worship me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. What kind of worshiper of God do you want to be? Do you want to be like Mary? Or do you want to be like the hypocritical Pharisees? Let's think and ponder that as we express our worship to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Father, to confess that we have not always worshipped you with sincerity and truth. Many times our hearts are far from you. But Lord, we look to you, the fountain of grace, the fountain of life. Oh Lord, fill us today. Fill us with joy and with thankfulness and hope. Give us humility, Lord. Help us to magnify you. We pray that you would increase and we would decrease and that we would behold your majesty in our prayer, in our worship, and in our Christian walks. I pray that every day would be a day of worship and that every day we would learn to sing songs of praise to you from the heart, hearts filled with joy. Oh, Lord, do a work in us. Do a work, we pray. Remove the darkness and fill us with the light of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing once again.